Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. I'm just sitting in the New Forest, a place that's so new it was established nearly a thousand years ago, which in terms of British history is, well, fairly new. Established by William the Conqueror after he had become William I. He carved out this big chunk of the south coast of England to be a royal hunting ground. Two of his sons died here in quote-unquote accidents and one of his grandsons as well. Divine retribution, some said, for throwing... Anglo-Saxon communities off this land. That does actually have something to do with today's podcast, unusually, because today's podcast deals with how you restrain untrammeled executive power, how you deal with Plantagenets. An ongoing question, really, through much of British history, how you deal with over-mighty Plantagenet kings. On this occasion, we are talking about what has been described by Dr. Sophie Therese Ambler, lecturer in later medieval British and European history at the University of Lancaster, as Britain's first revolution. She has written a wonderful biography of Simon de Montfort, who played a key role in that, went from being a close royal family member, ally, to being one of the royal family's most bitter enemies, and even at one stage, removing Henry III from his position of power. Uh, this was a fascinating podcast. The life of Simon de Montfort is absolutely brilliant. Uh, before you listen to it, please go to historyhit.tv. We've got lots of films that we're dropping this week. Particularly James, who's effectively running the show in History Hit House. He's gone to Glastonbury. He's not really checking in for the next few days because he's checking out in a big way. And that means the more subscribers you get, it will be a very pleasant surprise when he arrives back at his desk feeling unbelievably jaded on Monday morning. In fact... We need to give him Monday off because you shouldn't ask anyone to come into work after Glastonbury. So Tuesday morning, he's going to check in on Tuesday morning. Let's give him a really pleasant surprise. If you go and become a subscriber to History Hit TV, let's surprise James. Let him enjoy his Glastonbury even more. And uh, use the code POD3 as ever, P-O-D-3, and you get the first three months for just one pound, euro, or dollar for each of those first three months. So you get a month free and then you get your first three months for just three pounds or dollars. That's basically four months for just three pounds or dollars. So please head over to History Hit TV and do that. But before you do that, please have a listen to Sophie Therese Ambler talking about Sam de Montfort. Hey, and if you are going to Glastonbury this weekend, enjoy it. More likely, you're on your way to Chalk Valley History Festival, which is a massive gathering of history geeks in southern England. I will be there on the Friday night in the Saturday. Please come up and say hello. It'd be great to see you there. So if you're on the way to either of those two events, sitting in traffic jams on this beautiful summer's evening, Enjoy. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I mean, this is... Is this a figure that we've forgotten to remember? He is widely well he used to be quite widely known i suppose when parliamentary history was taught in schools not so much anymore and he's sometimes overshadowed by his father who has the same name simon de montfort who led the albigensian crusade so he has been sidelined um, to some extent why should we remember why is he important because he led england's or europe's first revolution He led a a band of noblemen in 1258 to seize power from King Henry III and said, we'll get along without kings, actually, in future. Well, we'll have a figurehead, but we will have a council and parliament and try doing things for ourselves and see if we do it any better. Um, And that was the first time that had ever happened. Nothing like that had been talked of or heard of before. And 
that's what that's one of you know the great achievements of the one fourteen era. Did his I want to start at the beginning, but I, just can't, I can't resist asking. Did his radical these radical ideas were they born from long held conviction and thought, or did they just kind of happen in response to the ever changing situation? Well, the latter precisely because there was no pre-existing sort of treaties on this is what you do to handle a king you're not very happy about, but who isn't bad. So King Henry III wasn't a bad man. He wasn't a terrible king at not all. Not his dad. No. Oh, he was completely different from King John. He was not. He was actually a very generous, kind-hearted man and father and, and king. His problem was that he was sort of middling incompetent so there wasn't a strong enough argument for taking any particularly strong action against him. The coup took place in 1258, really, because at this parliament um, in Westminster, a group of men who had particular grievances got very angry about it and probably talked about it amongst themselves and their sort of anger reverberated around the room and they worked each other up into a state where they decided right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to march on the king. We're going to put on our armour and march on the king's hall and take power. Sounds like Twitter. <laughs> yeah, you're, they're in the echo chamber. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, now, so let's start. Talk to me about the Montfort family. Who was Simon de Montfort and, and what was his background? Well, the Montfort family were a famous family of crusaders from France. They came from the area just outside Paris. And our Simon's father, um, Simon de Montfort, led the Albigensian crusade in 1209 along with his wife, Alistair Montmorency, and all of his children. Simon was only about a year old when his father was elected leader of the crusade. His mother brought him down to Languedoc in southern France to help prosecute this crusade. And that was where he spent the first 10 years of his life, in a conflict zone, uh, in a very, very brutal war that he, you know, he saw his brother's inducted into knighthood and then to be wounded as well during the course of this um, conflict. His mother was there raising troops and fighting on the front line. And his father became a very, very famous crusader. He was celebrated in his day as the leader of this sort of holy enterprise as it was seen then. And this is the role model that was created really for, for Simon when he came to England. What brought him to England? Well, he had a family claim to the Earldom of Leicester. His father should have inherited the Earldom, but after the loss of Normandy with King John, um, a lot of people had to choose sides and they chose France. So he was the younger son and he wanted to stake the claim to the Earldom. He came to England then um, in his early 20s, approached Henry III and said, I should be granted the Earldom of Leicester. And he won Henry round and Henry agreed and let him have the oldham. And then eventually also his sister. So exactly, he became Henry's brother-in-law. Mm. Um, so, he's, so he was successful within the Plantagenet court in England. He was very successful. It was a difficult place to operate as any court is. But within a few years, he'd worked his way up the ranks. He had grown in popularity with the king. He spent a lot more time at court. And that's where he met um, Eleanor, um, who would be his countess, the king's sister. She was widowed at the age of 16, so she was married very young. She'd taken a vow of chastity to essentially remove herself from the marriage market. And then Simon de Montfort came along and the vow of chastity went out the window. 
So do you think it was a love match? I think so, yes. Yes, that's the, the best explanation for it. I mean, the marriage actually took place in secret with the king's consent. He gave the bride away, but the king should have asked around for advice before he married off such an important commodity, and he didn't do it. And the reason seems to be that the two were so fond of each other, he thought the best solution was just to let them get married. How old were they both? Oh, gosh. So um, Simon was born in 1208, and this happens in 1239. So, yes. And she would have been a few years younger than him, but not a great deal. And and how does then, what's Simon's journey from being part of the king's inner circle family to becoming this famous, almost revolutionary? It was a turbulent journey, and it was marked by arguments with the king. In part, it was a personality clash. So Simon went on crusade in 1240-1241 to the Holy Land. He impressed the noblemen of Jerusalem so much that they asked whether he could be their regent. So he obviously had um, something about him that made people want to follow him. He came home, continued building his career in England, and then he was appointed governor of Gascony by Henry III um, in the early 1250s. And that's where things really started to go wrong, because Simon governed Gascony in a way that was quite heavy-handed, effective, but quite brutal. And Henry recalled Simon, put him in a sort of a show trial inquiry, allowed lots of people to throw accusations at him. And Simon felt a massive sense of injustice. He felt it had been poorly done by the king and his lord and his brother-in-law. And that caused a massive rupture in their relationship. But still, none of this makes the 1258 coup and then the eventual revolution inevitable. There were all sorts of factors swirling around and personalities were just one of them. Let's, let's explore the, the rest of that journey. Why do we remember him now, or should we remember him as the first parliamentarian? I think he has justifiable claim to that title. Parliaments have been going on for centuries. There was nothing unusual about holding a meeting of the great men of the land to discuss important business. The term parliament first emerges in the 1230s, so that's not new. And he wasn't the first person to bring knights to Parliament by a system of election. That was actually Henry III in the 1250s. What was remarkable about the parliaments that Simon held, it was two things, really. Firstly, in 1258, he and his comrades decided they would hold three parliaments a year, no matter what. So not just when the king wants a parliament, but come what may, there will be three parliaments a year. And that was transformative. The second thing that he did that was really quite new was hold this parliament in the early months of 1265, to which not only knights but men from the towns were invited as well. So that's the first time we definitely know that men from the towns came to parliament. And that was partly a bit of a propaganda exercise because this would provide for him the perfect stage to demonstrate to the kingdom what an amazing um, governor he was, because all those people who came to Parliament would go home and tell their friends and families, Simon de Montfort and his council, you know, this is what it's all about. But it it also spoke to a, a strongly held principle that Parliament and discussion before taking decisions should be central to the running of the kingdom. 
Okay, so let's just what what causes the final break between uh, De Montfort and uh, Henry? Why do why did why does De Montfort go down this kind of parliamentary route? Mm-hmm. Well, um, it was partly because Henry had been making some major decisions without asking for advice, and one of them was to conquer the Kingdom of Sicily. The Pope offered him license to go to Sicily and conquer it on behalf of the papacy. Henry thought this was a tremendous idea and agreed to it. The only problem was he would have to pay the Pope uh, £90,000, which is an inordinate sum in this period, just for licence to take the kingdom. That's before he could even raise an army. And to make that kind of decision without asking your men, who then have to pay for it, is incredibly, incredibly problematic. So that's really where um, a lot of the reforms relating to Parliament came in. It was to stop those sorts of bad decisions um, taking place. So an executive branch makes expensive foreign policy decisions and that causes uh, domestic backlash in the legislature. Fascinating stuff. Sounds it could be the 17th century, it could be lots of other things. It could, it could. And what makes it worse, I suppose, is that this was taking place against the backdrop of of an awful famine in 1257 to 1258. So there were were people starving on the streets and and collapsing uh, and charging huge amounts of money from your people whilst this is going on is probably not a very popular move either. So de Montfort and his guys get all riled up in Westminster. And what do they do? Well, one morning they put on their armour um, and a, a small uh, group of them marched on Westminster Hall. They took off their swords as they entered and laid them ceremonially on the ground to show that they weren't holding the king at sword point. Um, but they marched up to him and... There's an eyewitness account of this event that that tells us Henry's reaction. He was shaken and he said, what is this, my lords? Am I, wretched fellow, your captive? As if they were on a battlefield, you know, and they'd taken him prisoner. And they said, no, 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 no. But essentially, you're going to hand over power to us and we will decide who holds your castles, who your sheriffs will be, who's going to be the great minister of state um, and all these different officers. So... Um, that was really the starting point. And then they went on um, with that council to make a series of reforms that essentially tried to root out corruption, set in place procedures for ordinary people to complain if they'd been mistreated by the crown or by the barons themselves. Where Was, was there any writing at the time? Was there any philosophy at the time that, that he was drawing on? Or did he just invent this? Yeah, it's a really difficult question. There was lots of philosophizing in the 12th and 13th centuries about government and power and what people can and can't do when they're unhappy with their king or their government. It was a a big part of King John's world, for instance, where Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote a lot about, oh, if the king makes a decision, but he hasn't consulted about it first, are you obliged to do what he says and all that kind of thing. So there was lots of discussion, but none of it suggested that this was the solution to the problem. In fact, quite the opposite. F, um, no matter how bad your king is, he's still a king. So you shouldn't be raising a hand against him. There are ways of solving those kind of problems that are available in this period. You can go to the Pope 
and complain to the Pope and see what the Pope will do. Or particularly in England, the bishops always had a big role in you know, reprimanding kings if they behave badly. And that usually worked. So there was nothing set out. Now, after they had taken power in 1258, they then had to provide various arguments to justify what they'd done. Um, because, you know, once the Pope found out about it, obviously they needed to try and persuade him and the papal legates that this was okay. They had to try and persuade the King of France that this was okay, because otherwise the King of France was going to come and put his, Henry's also his brother-in-law, put Henry back on the throne. So we have lots of arguments that they produced to try and justify what they'd done. None of them were particularly convincing, because how could they be when you have to make up a very complex argument on the spot like that? Do we, like, during the anniversary of Magna Carta a few years ago, we had lots of people telling us that Magna Carta didn't really matter that much. It, is it, from your study of this period, does the shadow of Magna Carta loom? Because, of course, the original 1215 Magna Carta, there was provision for a council of nobles to actually take royal power if he reneged on his promises. So it, do you think this is... Are they inspired by that previous generation? Magna Carta is massive in this period, um, and it was tremendously important to people at the time. This was the standard for good kingship to which people um, could appeal. So Magna Carta matters for Simon de Montfort in a couple of ways. One of them is that Magna Carta was reissued and, and confirmed by Henry III, but it just didn't deal adequately with the emerging situation so although everyone recognises it's a symbol of good government, it just doesn't quite do the job as comprehensively as you would like. So that's why they felt the need to add more reforms. But it was also a symbol for them of good government and a way of advertising their own regime. So at this parliament in January to March 1265, the famous Montfortian parliament, one of the most important acts at the Parliament's climax was to confirm Magna Carta alongside the radical constitution they'd put in place for a council. And that was a way of telling everyone, look, what we're doing now might be beyond the pale politically, but look, we care about Magna Carta. We're upholding the principles of Magna Carta and we're going to govern by those principles. So a way of making it, the reforms more palatable to the wider public. So it was essential, really, in some of the causes of, of this revolutionary period, but also in the spin that was that was put out as a result. Why does how long does Simon de Montfort's regime, if we can call it that, last? Mm-hmm. And and how does Henry and his warlike son challenge it? Well, um, the first stage of the process only lasted a couple of years, 1258, 1259. Henry came back to power. But 1263, open warfare broke out across the kingdom. Simon led a violent campaign attacking royal lands. And things came to a head at the Battle of Lewis in May 1264, where Simon de Montfort led an army against the king. And it was probably his first battle, as opposed to a siege or skirmish. But he did a very, very competent job of it and managed to defeat the king's army and take the king captive, along with Henry's son, Edward, future Edward I. So that allowed him to start a whole new wave of reform and set up a new council and a new constitution. 
that was intended to govern the kingdom indefinitely. And it lasted about 15 months until um, the spring of 1265, when young Edward escaped from jail, uh, had a daring escape um, uh, aided by by somebody who who was on the inside, Uh, went off, raised an army, and came to meet Simon at Evesham in August 1265. And Evesham is, well, it's one of our best documented battles from this period, but it's also one of the most... Well, obviously, all battles are traumatic, but this one was particularly awful. And de Montfort knew it would be. There's that amazing line, isn't he? He said, may God have mercy on our souls for our bodies are theirs. Yes, there's this sort of sense of, I mean, he wasn't looking for a battle at Evesham. He knew he was outnumbered and he was actually trying to get his army away. Edward caught up with him. And I think it's at that point that a decision has to be made. You know, do we try and run? but that might not work. The one thing left in their control was to fight, knowing that they would probably die, but at least they would die as they saw it, as crusaders, as martyrs, um, in a just cause. So there's this moment where he, um, we have an amazing eyewitness account of the last hours of Simon de Montfort, written by one of the monks of Evesham Abbey, who was there and watched these conversations taking place. And there's a moment where Simon says to his men, you need to get away. You need to save yourselves. And they say, no, we're going to stay and we're going to fight with you. So they they went into it willingly, clearly. So Simon's men, this army, as far as we can tell, is being bound together by almost an ideological commitment, is it? An ideological commitment, a sense of justice and an oath. So it was very, very important to... um, the way that Simon saw himself and his cause, that they'd sworn an oath to uphold these reforms and to put these in place. And if you've sworn an oath, you stick to it no matter what, no matter what you are um, required to endure. So he had taken this oath, his men had taken this oath, and then they also took in 1263 and 1264 the vows of a crusader. So they were signed with the cross. So they had a double sense, really, of righteousness and a firm conviction that what they were doing was just in the eyes of God. How did the Battle of Evesham end up? It ended up very badly. So it was almost a complete reverse of what happened at Lewis um, the year before. Simon's men were, were caught unawares, had to rush to action very quickly and ended up fighting uphill through Lewis, which was the worst situation they could be in. Edward and his army had um, arranged themselves on the top of the hill. Very quickly, they surrounded the Montfortian forces um, and started cutting them down. And in particular, and what is, again, something quite new here. um, So before the battle, Edward had chosen 12 of his best men as a death squad who were charged with hunting down Simon de Montfort on the battlefield. So that's what happened. That's what these 12 men did. They were led by Roger Mortimer, uh, one of the barons of the Welsh marches. And he came for Simon and speared him through the neck. And Simon fell there on the battlefield. They then set about his body um, in this, again, this is very, very unusual, act of ritual slaughter. So they cut off his hands and his feet and they were taken as trophies. They cut off his head, 
and they cut off his testicles and stuffed them into his mouth. And that prize of the head was sent back as a present to the wife of the man who'd killed him. And then the rest of his men had scattered and they ran back down the hill to Evesham Abbey, where they'd started that morning. And of course, they were running for sanctuary in the Abbey Church. Um, and the eyewitness account, um, which probably comes from one of the Abbey's monks who was there, describes the scene that he encountered when he went back into the church because Edward's men had broken the laws of sanctuary. So he entered the church and slaughtered them around the high altar. And it was this ghastly pile of bodies that the monks then had to then had to bury. I should have asked more about what was the what was the system of government that Simon de Montfort envisaged? How would you how do you describe this revolutionary new system? Mm. Well, um, we know quite a lot about what form it was supposed to take because he created a written constitution after the Battle of Lewis in 1264. And it tells us quite clearly how it was supposed to work. So you would have three men who acted as electors. One of them was Simon. They would choose a council of nine men. And those nine men would make all decisions about the running of the kingdom, but by a two-thirds majority. And that was supposed to avoid factions and, and so on. We know who those men were. So it was a combination of, of bishops and churchmen, of barons and of knights. So a representative body of different interest groups. And they would effectively govern the country with a king somewhere in the background. And then parliament would be held three times a year and the council would consult with parliament. OK, so, so Simon de Montfort is slaughtered on the battlefield. His followers are destroyed. Edward I, he was unlucky in his enemies. Edward I turns out to be one of the great kings of, if not the great king of English medieval history. Does de Montfort's legacy endure? I think to some extent it does, in the sense that, you know, if you go to Lewis or Evesham today, there are monuments to Montfort. There's a university named after him in his home city. So there are traces of him. But does his legacy endure? The legacy of his parliament certainly does. We had big celebrations in 1250, um, 2015 um, at the same time as the Magna Carta celebrations to mark that in 1265. But really, is his story understood or is it understood in a meaningful way? Perhaps not as much as it should be, which hopefully the book will, you will, <laughs> will, you will resolve. Of course, but, um, but, but, but I mean, Edward I... Does he sort of embrace the idea of, of holding parliaments? He reissues Magna Carta. Is he quite mindful of, of, the, of the de Montfort experience? Edward was very canny in that respect. Uh, there's a famous article written about this very subject by John Maddicott, and it's called Edward I and the Lessons of Baronial Reform. Basically, if you can take the popular bits that everyone loved, that is, you know, having parliaments, giving access to justice for ordinary people, rooting out corruption, that sort of thing. If you can take those bits that are popular and just cut out the bits that are objectionable, you know, with the council and everything else, then it's a very popular way to proceed. And that's what, exactly what Edward did. Because it is always fascinating, isn't it? Like those developments in the 13th century, Magna Carta and the kind of the, the, the evolution of a parliamentary system, is it then accidental that Britain becomes kind of the, one of the world's great parliamentary democracies a few centuries later on? Or are they, 
are, are they somehow an important part of that of that story? Well, I think what you can see with the uh, the emergence of Parliament, particularly in the 13th century and also before, is that so much of this was haphazard. There was nothing necessarily inevitable about it at all. So one of the big problems um, that really led to the development of Parliament in the 13th century was that the king didn't have any money. So if you don't have any money and the income from your lands has gone down, uh, inflation has hit your income as well, where do you get your money from? Well, your only solution is to go to Parliament. And that gives the barons and the bishops in Parliament an opportunity to complain about what you're doing and make demands in return. So it's a sort of a give and take relationship. There was nothing inevitable about the emergence of Parliament necessarily at all. It was a response to particular situations at the time. And I think that's one of, I suppose that's one of the lessons of of history, really, isn't it? It's how much is left to chance. Well, thank you. Nothing will be left to chance this book. It's going to be a terrific bestseller, I've no doubt. Uh, Good luck with it. What's it called? The Song of Simon de Montfort, England's First Revolutionary and the Death of Chivalry. Very nice. It's available at historyit.com slash books, as all the books on this podcast are. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. What is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.